Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. None of us want to put a shortcoming out there. None of us want to put a need out there. None of us want to throw this out there where others can see, right, and, and, and have other people recognize our shortcomings. And, and, you know, when it comes to our finances, man, we put on that good front, right? Come on, somebody. We're wearing Gucci and, and all kinds of stuff. But then you look and, like, the C's aren't really the right C, you know. Come on. You're wearing, wearing Tommy Hilfanger or something like that, right? It's got the... The stripe, but it's not quite there. It's just a little bit off, you know, finances. We're good. Everything's on point, right? Because we got credit cards all over town. Oh, that got a little bit too close as well. We'll just leave that alone. And we're able to live up that front, you know, marriage and relationships, right? Chances are one out of every two married people think they need to work on their relationship, I'll just leave that alone. But we don't, we don't want people to know that we need to work on our relationship. We don't want people to know we need to work on our marriage, right? Or maybe it's something a little more serious. Maybe you can't stop clicking on that. But after you click on it, you erase your browser history. Ah, because we, we don't want people to know. We don't want people to see. We're all about appearances, that's why as soon as service is over, some of us will be sucking it in as we head out the doors. Can I hear a good amen from anybody? You guys know what it means to suck it in, right? That's right. Uh, waiting for them to invent a man girdle, and then I don't have to suck it in anymore uh, or just lose weight. Maybe that would be better. But we hate it. We hate it when people see that we come up short somewhere. We do not like for people to notice our insufficiency. And then even as parents, one of our biggest pretend points is actually in parenting. Man, we do not want other people to see that we are struggling as parents. There was actually a study done recently, and that was actually one of the biggest points of anxiety for parents is that they did not want other people to see that their kids were struggling. But when they started diving into the reasons why parents didn't want other people to see their kids struggling. It turns out that their concern for their kids wasn't really the primary reason why. It was because they were afraid of what other people would think if other people saw their kids struggling. That's sad. That's where we are in society, right? Facebook is our highlight reel. We, we judge our normal, everyday, mundane, day-to-day -day life by other people's highlight reel on Facebook. And then we get depressed, so we cover it up, and we put our own highlights out there, right? And we're pretty good at covering up what we don't want others to see. And why, why in the world do we do that? Why do we want other people to think that we're perfect? I don't know why we want other people to think we're perfect, because it seems like when we do see somebody else who seems like they have it all together, we just talk about them right? We gossip about them, and, and we end up allowing what others might think about us to influence whether or not we ask someone for help. We're worried about what other people might think or say about us more than we are worried about fixing or getting help for something that we cannot fix on our own. We don't like to be the people to admit, you know, like this part of me this area of my life right here, this is broken. We don't want to be the ones to say, I think my career needs help. We don't want to be the ones to say, I think my parenting needs a little bit of help, right? That thing that I, I keep doing, it's out of my control now. We don't want to be the ones that admit that, right? I, we don't want to admit that we are no, no longer controlling it, but it is now controlling us. And, and I think you know, somebody outside of myself, or we think somebody outside of ourselves maybe needs to speak new life into our situation. We don't want to be the people that admit that. And so we hide it, and we cover it up, and we learn to manage our brokenness. Somebody say, learn to manage. We learn to manage our brokenness. We learn to lower our expectations 
We learn to live with lesser hopes. We learn to live with broken dreams. And I mean, after all, who's perfect, right? Who doesn't have a few flaws? But the problem is that we can learn how to function with brokenness for so long that we get to the point where we don't even see what is broken anymore. Did you know that? We can learn to manage our brokenness so well that pretty soon we don't even notice our brokenness anymore. Did you know that you always see your nose? Did you know that? Did you also know that just about half of the people in here just went cross-eyed? Yeah, you should have seen it from up here. It was scary. But what happens is you always see your nose. It's there. It's in your field of vision, but your brain has learned to ignore it since it is always there, and you have learned how to see past it because it's just a normal part of your vision. I wonder what pains our hearts have learned to see as normal. I wonder what brokenness we have so learned to manage that we don't even notice it anymore, even though to somebody else it might be as plain as the nose on our face. Come on, somebody. Do you like how I tied that together? We live with this idea, this brokenness, that relationships don't last forever. At least my parents didn't. At least my first relationship didn't. So this next relationship, I'm going to make sure I, I hold back a bit. And that's my normal now. And I don't even see anymore that this is something that should be fixed. This is something that needs to be healed. Or we think, man, I don't know how I would even survive without credit cards. It's our normal now. We can't even see anymore that it just gives us anxiety and it's this hamster wheel of existence that just leads us nowhere. Can I hear a good amen? We, we can't seem to kick this habit, right? And, and pretty soon we don't even notice it anymore. We just learn how to manage it. We become functioning whatever, functioning fill in the blanks. We learn how to get by, and we're just more careful about when we do it or who's around. But I have great news this morning, although it might be a little bit uncomfortable getting there, even though it might feel like you're running uphill 12 miles trying to make it. I want to tell everybody in this room, relationships can last forever. You don't have to live under debt for the rest of your life, and you can be free from your addictions. And I could go on and on and on. You are not stuck with broken. Or at least you don't have to be. You don't have to be. But we settle. We settle with broken. We settle with dying. We settle with almost dead. Because we don't want to admit. We don't want to admit. We don't want to put it out there and let other people see. And we learn to think that this is the way it's always going to be and there's nothing that can be done. But I am here to tell you that nothing is beyond healing. Nothing is so far gone that it cannot be brought back to life as long as you will take the necessary steps to involve someone who knows a lot about bringing dead things back to life. But we tell ourselves things, well, like you know, good things happen to other people. As if the universe or karma or whatever it is you believe in, maybe it's God. The God is against us, what, which is actually a huge statement of faith, right? That karma might be against you, that the universe or that God might be against you. That's actually a huge statement of faith. Do you realize how much faith it takes to believe that God actually knows who you are so that he could work against you? It's actually a huge statement of faith. Or we say things like, it is what it is. Anybody ever heard that one before? Basically, we're saying, it's never going to get better. It's out of our control. It's beyond our ability to change. This pain, this brokenness is a given, and it has been given to me. Even though most of the time we bring things on ourselves, don't we? Or we just shift blame, right? This is how my childhood was. This is how my father was. This is how my mother was. My family was. This was my circle of friends growing up. And since this is what I was raised with, well, then I'm stuck. And this is fate. And this is what I will always be. And too many of us miss what could be and what should be because we have invented reasons why things can never change. And we learn to live with dying things. Somebody say, learn to live. We learn to manage 
We learn to live with broken and with dying things. But what, what do we do when something is too important to let die? What if it's not just small? What if, what if it's some area of our life or some relationship that we just can't afford to walk away from? You know, I, I can't just leave this one on its own. I can't let, the, let this one run its course. I can't just walk away. I can't seem to fix it, but I can't just walk away. There's no way that I can heal it. I've tried. I've done everything I know how to do, but I can't seem to walk away. It, it means so much, and, and it's, it's on life support, but I'm not leaving. I'm not turning my back. And when we have those moments, when we bump into those issues and those parts of our lives that are broken or dying, but they're just too critical to let go and, and to, to keep going on that, that spiral downwards, we begin to see what's really important in life and what's not. When we bump up against something so painful, but yet so important, life gets crystallized, doesn't it? We start to really see what really matters in life. We start to understand and get a new appreciation for whose voice really matters, whose opinion really counts, and whose just doesn't anymore. And that's when life kind of gets gritty and it gets real, and that's when we stop posting to Facebook for a while, right? I'm going on a Facebook fast. I'm going off Facebook for a while, people. Anybody ever gone on a Facebook fast for 10 minutes? Y'all ever done that? <laughs> Delete the app off your phone, and then you go in through the browser somebody. I did that. I guess nobody else did that. I need to do it again, but not go in through the browser. But desperation can set in when something is so important that we can't afford to walk away or we can't afford to let it die. That's when desperation sets in. And the thing about desperation is it makes you look desperate. Desperation makes you look desperate. Anybody ever seen somebody who is desperate? Anybody ever seen someone who just needs something that they can't quite seem to put their hands on? They don't care who sees. They don't care who knows. They don't care what is around. Anybody ever been desperate in the room? Y'all are scared to admit it this morning. Everybody, these lights are bright. Is everybody awake out there? Can I hear? Can I hear an, an amen? There, there we go. Okay. We don't want to admit that we're desperate. We don't even want to admit that we've been desperate in life. I bet I could go story after story, relationship after relationship, talk to you one-on-one -on -one with no one else around, and you admit that, yes, at this point, in this circumstance, with this thing that was way beyond me, I got a little desperate. Maybe that's why you're at church this morning. Maybe that's why you're thinking about Jesus and faith and Christianity again. This is when people actually start to throw themselves on the mercies of outside forces. This is when we send up those prayers. You know, God, I promise if you will. God, if you won't, then I promise I won't ever again, right? And we all get here, even Jesus followers. You don't even have to, you know, be a non-Jesus follower, a non-Christian to do this. Even Jesus followers, we get this here, you know, get to this place sometimes. Being a Jesus follower does not mean that our life will be pain-free, problem-free. Can I hear an amen from somebody? That's not what Jesus promised, but he did promise that in our pain and in our problems that we can have a hope and a confidence that we are heard, that we are seen, that we are even known in the deepest, most secret parts of ourselves. And even though he knows us at our worst, he loves us more than anybody else ever has or ever possibly can. That's what it means. It's what it means to be a Jesus follower. It turns out, even especially in my weakness, that he knows me and he sees me and he hears me and he loves me. It turns out that especially in my tragedy, when my faith is almost failing, that's why Paul said, I will therefore glory in my weaknesses. I'm going to celebrate my, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because I found out that when I come to the end of myself, that's when I most clearly see and find Jesus and his strength. And we all need to be reminded sometimes, whatever you are living with that's broken, whatever you're living with that's dying, you need to be reminded and you need to know this morning that Jesus cares. But more than just kind of an empty sentimentality, Jesus can. 
Jesus can what? What can't Jesus do? Jesus can heal. Jesus can restore. Jesus can forgive that. Jesus can deliver. Jesus can set you free. Jesus can. Oh, come on, somebody and clap your hands all over this room. Anybody ever had Jesus come through? Anybody ever had a prayer answered? Anybody want to shout their voice this morning to the one who came through when we could not come through for ourselves? This is the supreme, this is the enduring comfort of the Christian faith. That I don't care how weak you are. I don't care how broken it is. It is never too far gone. Even if it seems over and done, Jesus specializes in bringing over and done things back to life. And it's in those times that we find ourselves driven by desperation to do something completely out of our comfort zone. Some might say finally to do something totally out of our comfort zone because when it's life or death, when it's sink or swim, when it's forgive or walk away, people will do just about anything. We, we will do just about anything to get what we need from somebody. And there's a story in the early days of Jesus's public life that I think illustrates this so beautifully. And John tells us about it. It's in the new part of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was one of Jesus' closest followers, maybe the closest follower of Jesus. John became a believer in Jesus, and then John stopped believing in Jesus because just like us, he thought Jesus was the author of life, and then he saw Jesus die. And when somebody claims to be the author of life, it just doesn't seem like they really are, and then they die. It doesn't seem like they really could be the author of life. So John stopped believing, but then something happened. John saw something that made John start to believe again. Now what could possibly make John think that Jesus was the author of life after he saw Jesus die? And we sang about it this morning. He saw a risen Jesus. He saw a resurrected Jesus, and it changed John's life forever. And so from that point on, John went out and he told all of his fellow Jewish people that Jesus had risen and they didn't believe him and they didn't like what he had to say. And so they began to persecute John along with all the other Christians and they drove them out of the nation of Israel. They drove them from their homeland. And what he told people about Jesus didn't just irritate people from Israel. He irritated the Roman emperor named Domitian, and Domitian was, was vain. He was full of himself. History gives account after account of, of his vanity, and Domitian didn't like people going around and telling everybody else that there was a different kind of king than Domitian. He didn't like someone who was going around telling everybody that there was a true king of everything, and it wasn't Domitian, it was actually Jesus. And, and so Domitian had John exiled to a bare rock of an island, and while John was there, he had a lot of time to think about his days and his time with Jesus, and he wrote down some things in a record of Jesus' public career. And, and out of all the possible stories that John could have shared with us about Jesus today, as we look at the problem of, of things in our life that are broken or things in our life that are dying, I think John put ink to papyrus, if you will, and, and shared this story with us just for our faith and for the hope that we need so desperately. And John begins the story with the father, a father who is simply too heartbroken and who, who is too desperate to stand still and watch his young son die. This father was not a believer. This father was a nobleman from a city called Capernaum, and he was a noble under a, a ruler over that area called Herod Antipas. And Herod had built up you know, tons of cities and, and edifices and stadiums and all kinds of things to to make himself famous and also to keep favor with Rome. And Rome saw what Herod was doing, and Rome was pleased. And so this nobleman father had, had done some service or paid some donation to become a nobleman under Herod Antipas. And he had Herod's resources as, as his own, and by extension, he had Rome's resources as his own. But yet this father could not get from Herod, and he could not get from Rome what he most wanted, and what he wanted was for his son to be healed and for his son to live. Now what's really ironic is just about 30 years before this, Herod's father had actually slaughtered thousands of other Jewish sons. And yet here, this man found himself on a road to meet a child that had escaped the slaughter. Meet a child from 30 years ago who had grown up to be a man who had escaped the slaughter. This nobleman was on his way 
to meet Jesus because he had heard something about Jesus. At this point in his career, we're only in John chapter 4. That's where we're going to read from in a second. At this point in Jesus' career, he probably didn't know too much about Jesus yet. But what he had heard about Jesus completely and totally impressed him. So much that he actually left his secular religion and left his secular resources and made the journey 12 miles from from Capernaum to a city called Cana where he heard that Jesus was. And it wasn't just the things that he had heard people say that Jesus had done. It was the way that Jesus seemed to, to handle himself after he did what he did. And there was no big pull for money. There was no big play for power, for position from Jesus. He didn't seem to want to ride fame or wealth to any kind of position. But there was something so attractive about Jesus' humility that when Jesus met with sick people and Jesus met with the leprous people, and you know, it's almost as if Jesus actually loved those that were sick. It's almost as if Jesus wanted to be the first ones to touch the lepers. Because once somebody got leprosy, nobody touched them again. No one hugged them again. No child put their hands in the hand of a leprous mother or father. And Jesus almost seemed to thrive on being the first touch that lepers felt in years when he would heal them. And Jesus seemed genuinely compassionate. And it did something for the hopes of this nobleman, this father. And so he went on a journey to see Jesus. And I want to pause and talk to the church for a second and tell us this. I think it is so interesting that he decided to go to Jesus because of someone else's story. He did not go to Jesus because he knew Jesus personally. He did not go to Jesus because he had Jesus on speed dial or he had been texting with him or he was friends on Facebook. It was secondhand information. He went to Jesus because of what someone else had said. And can I say it this morning? This is how the church bees the church. This is what we are to do. This is what we are to say, to tell others about the grace and the goodness and the mercies and the kindness of God, to tell other people about what was broken in our life and what was dying in our life until the day we met the man from Galilee and Jesus changed everything. This is why Growth Track is so important. And maybe you've been coming here for years and never been through Growth Track. You need to go through Growth Track. It's not just for new people. This is why small groups are so important. It's not just for you to receive something. It's because Jesus has given you something worth sharing. Your story matters. Your story matters. And we, we you know, a lot of times in churches, like, you know, we're, we're all face, you, y'all are all facing the front, right? The stage is here. All the fancy lights are up here. And it can all, we, we can fall into the trap of thinking that what happens on the stage is m- what's most important in the church. That's not it. You are what is most important in the church. Your conversion, your miracle, your blessing, your forgiveness, your life lived day by day following the spirit of a risen Savior. That's what the church is. You are the church. This isn't church. This is lights. You can buy these for just a couple of bucks. Like there's nothing. And I love them and they're cool looking, aren't they? This is nice. This is neat. And somebody, I, I got one of the greatest compliments. Somebody was saying, you know, Pastor Jared, when you guys redid the stage, it makes you guys look so small up there. The problem was they went small this way. I was hoping they'd say small this way, like, you know, but they didn't. We'll keep working on these lights, see if we can get that worked out. But this, listen, don't think who cares about my trouble. Don't think, who cares about my story? Listen, it's not even really your story. Your story about Jesus isn't supposed to be a story about you. Everything that's good in your life should point people to him, get people's attention on him. It's all about Jesus. Come on and somebody say Jesus at the center of it all. You may not think it matters very much, but you'll never know what hangs in the balance of you sharing your story of God's mercy and God's grace. Somebody's story started this nobleman on a journey to meet with Jesus. 
from Capernaum to Cana. Again, it's about 12 miles. It's uphill almost the whole way. And, and John tells us that he was a nobleman, and noblemen back then didn't run anywhere. But if you're a dad in this room, if you're a parent in this room, you know the urgency in this man's heart. His son is almost dead. He does not know how many more breaths his son will breathe. If he makes the journey and his son can't be healed, he may never see his son alive again. And so I think this nobleman from the first century picked up his robes and hustled along on that road from Capernaum to Cana. He spent huge sums of money. He spent tons of time on doctors and and healers in his area. He's reached out to Herod and and all of the other members of the power circle to see if they knew it. He was desperate. And there was only one more possible solution, only one more thing that he could think could happen. And I think that made him run as fast as his noble legs could carry him to Jesus. And he gets to Jesus, and I think he's out of breath. And I I think that he stands there kind of sweating because he's run 12 miles through a desert. I don't even like to run 12 miles in the gym with the AC on. He's he's running, and, and his robes and his decorations, they tell people one thing about who he is. But his condition and his sweat and his breath tells something altogether different. He's desperate, and he doesn't care who knows. He doesn't care who sees. And now he finds himself in front of Jesus. And if you've ever been desperate before, you, you can imagine this moment, right? You're desperate for something and you, you're wondering what to do and you finally get yourself to the place where you thought you needed to be and then there's that moment of like, okay, now, now what? And I think this man finds himself in a, a now what moment because he finds himself as a nobleman in a position that he is not very familiar with at all. It's something. It's a position that he's never been in very often. It's uncomfortable. It's unusual. It's, it's kind of a weird feeling for a man of wealth and position and power. It's the situation that we started out with. This man finds himself in the position of someone in need of something outside of himself. And then think about this. There was nothing that he could offer Jesus in exchange for what he was about to ask for. What do you give a healer for a healing? Have we ever tried to bargain with God before, right? Those prayers I was talking about. God, if you will, then I will. God, if you won't, then I promise I never will again. Really, like, what do we have that's valuable to God? If God is God and we are not, then what in the world could we use as a bargaining chip? And it, it sort of undermines that philosophy that we've been living by for too long, you know, where we say that what we do really doesn't matter. But then we come to Jesus and we say, if you will, then I will. What can we offer Jesus? What do we offer a healer? I know what to pay a doctor. I know how much it costs to get a broken arm set. I know how much it costs to go through surgery, even you know scary big surgeries like open heart surgery or something like that. But what if someone is dying and it's beyond the reach of medicine? What do you offer a healer? And as this nobleman starts getting close to Jesus, I think his mind is kind of thinking about all that. He's used to using wealth and position to kind of work and leverage out what he needs in life. But now... What does he give to Jesus? And deals involve trades and favors, but he has nothing to trade. And from what he knows about Jesus, it doesn't seem like Jesus is very interested in the kind of favors that he can offer. And so he does what any of us would do in that situation. And John tells us in John chapter 4 and verse 47, he went to him, he went to Jesus, and he begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, there's crowds all around them. Jesus never went anywhere by this point in his career. He never went anywhere alone anymore. He had to sneak away to get away from the crowds. There are crowds all around him, and he's in Cana. It's the area where he grew up. It's the area where just a couple of chapters before, he had turned water into wine. And the reason he was even at that wedding was because people there knew him and knew his mom, and they had invited them. People around this area knew who Jesus was, and they're watching Jesus. And then they see this nobleman come up, and this nobleman is, is begging He's begging Joseph's son. He's begging Mary's son, right? And, and you know, there's some reports of him doing some miracles in, in Jerusalem. And, yeah, we know about the water to wine trick, but this, you know, Jesus is nowhere near, at this point, Jesus is nowhere near as famous as he's going to be 
by the end of his ministry. And this nobleman from Herod's circle of power is begging, begging Jesus. Begging Jesus. Like this word is not just a normal ask kind of word, is it? To beg someone, to plead with someone, to let your heart bleed all over the conversation, to open up and tell someone what you need most in that moment. And I think these people looked at this man and thought, I don't think he needs to get all undignified like that. Like Jesus does some cool tricks, but I don't know if Jesus is who this man needs to talk to. Jesus never did anything miraculous for me, and I've known him for years. All of these people were around, and the nobleman hears it all, and he does not care. His focus is on the one who he has heard is a healer. And can I tell anyone in this room this morning, let me give you a little bit of heads up. The moment you try coming to Jesus, the moment that you acknowledge and and maybe even tell somebody close to you, I've tried everything else and everything else couldn't help. The moment that you say, so I'm going to God. So I'm going to, I'm telling you, you will hear voice after voice. You'll have doubts come out of nowhere. You'll have people that haven't spoken to you for years suddenly speak up and tell you, just don't do that. You don't deserve that. You're not worthy of that. That doesn't work. They've tried it. But he does not care about the voices around him. His attention is undivided. He remains undistracted. Sir, my boy is dying. Would you please, I'm begging you, would you come and heal my son? He's undistracted even when Jesus stops the whole story to address the doubts of the crowd. Jesus has this man begging him and he confronts the unbelief that's right there. And Jesus almost even seems to lump this man into the category of the crowd. And it's like he's testing him. He's proving what this man is there for and what this man really wants. And Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never, never believe. Man, that's harsh, isn't it? We know nice Jesus. We like nice Jesus. You know, he's Caucasian with a beard and carries a sheep on his shoulder. Has a nice glow behind him wherever he... We want soft and cuddly Jesus. And here's Jesus being a little harsh. He says, you people. You ever had somebody tell you that you're one of uh, you people? You people. Who people? A politician, a nobleman, and a bunch of people in Cana who had heard about the water turned into wine two chapters ago, but all they were looking forward to was Jesus putting on a show. Jesus is surrounded by a crowd of thrill-seekers and one desperate man. And Jesus addresses them, and he levels a rebuke, and he's bringing the nobleman's heart front and center. And in essence, he is asking that man, and he's asking the crowd what he wants to ask each and every one of us here today, and that is this, what do we really want from Jesus? What do you really need from Jesus? Now stay with me for a second. Do you want to see someone healed, or do you want your son to be healed? See, there's a big difference in that statement. There's a big difference between those questions. Do you wish that Jesus would fix your spouse? Or do you want Jesus to heal your marriage? And there's a big difference. And what's involved in those two things might actually be really, really uncomfortable for us to deal with. Do you want Jesus to correct your financial mess? Or do you want Jesus to make it so that you never worry about money again? There's a big difference between those two questions. Do you want Jesus to forgive you for what you did in your past? Or do you want Jesus to so change you as a person that you never hurt anyone again? There's a huge difference. What do you want from Jesus? Do you just want forgiveness? Do you just want a preacher to shake your hand and tell you that you're going to go to heaven one day when you die? Or do you want a miracle of transformation 
in your heart and in your life, a miracle of transformation in your core humanness that makes you into a different kind of person altogether and begins to spill over into every area of your life and transforms marriages and relationships and career and finances and, and your character and your, your virtues and everything because Jesus is only interested in one thing and it's not the quick and easy fix. Jesus doesn't want to give you an aspirin for your brain tumor, but he can heal you of what it is that has made you what you were. And he alone has the power to make you into something that you could never be without him. You can ask Jesus for whatever you want, but he's only interested in giving us what we need. The nobleman looks at Jesus and he answers like we all hope that he's going to answer. He answers like we hope we would answer if we found ourselves standing in front of Jesus. He tells him in verse 49, Sir, please come down before my child dies. Please make the 12-mile journey. Downhill, Jesus, it's easy. We'll go slow, but can you come? Can you heal my son before he dies? His response to Jesus' rebuke shows that Jesus was asking him what he really, he really wanted, and Jesus wanted to know his, his heart, and Jesus wanted to know what his motives were, and so it is for each and every one of us today. Why are we here? Why do we come to church? Why do we call ourselves Christians? What is it that we really want from Jesus, and what is it that we just think we want from Jesus? But desperate times call for desperate requests and so in desperation, he says, Jesus, come before my son dies. I don't know how long it's going to be. I don't know how many breaths he has left to breathe. Jesus, would you please come before my son dies? And Jesus tells him, go, your son will live. Now, this is interesting to me because he just asked Jesus to come home with him. And Jesus said, no. He just asked Jesus to go back to his house and make the 12-mile journey. And Jesus said, nope. But Jesus, I came all this way. It's 12 miles uphill. I'm sweaty and I'm out of breath and I had to run and it's so undignified and I've risked my reputation by coming to you. You're an insurgent teacher and everybody's going to know that I came to you. Everybody's going to know you're about 30 years old and Herod's father tried to have you killed when you were a baby. Everybody's going to know that it's somebody that's kind of contrary to the circles that I normally associate with. And I came determined to do whatever it took to get you to come and heal my boy. And you're saying no. Jesus said, I'm saying I won't go with you, but I'm telling you the only thing you really need to hear. And the nobleman in that moment had to decide right then and right there what he believed about Jesus. In that moment, his faith came to the fork in the road. In that moment, he had to decide why he had come and what he really needed by coming and what he could and what he could not afford to go home with. And if Jesus really was a healer, I mean, how does it work? How does healing power work? Does Jesus need to be in the same room with my son? Does Jesus need to be close? I mean, can it be six miles away? Can it be eight miles away, 12? Like, how does healing power work? He had to decide in that moment what he believed about Jesus. In that moment, he had to trust what Jesus had said. Oh, come on, somebody. In that moment, without being able to see his son, with no cell phone, no text messaging, no FaceTime or any other kind of communication method, 12 miles away across a desert, he had to trust that Jesus' power was not limited by his understanding. Oh, come on, somebody. That Jesus' power is not limited by our understanding. That just because Jesus isn't answering our prayers in the way we wanted him to does not mean that Jesus is not answering my prayers. I've said this before, and I hope I say it forever. Do you really want a God that you can understand? Like, do we really want a God that's almost as, that it's only as smart as us? We, we lock our keys in our car. 
We put foil in the microwave. We do all kinds of things. We sign up for email lists like by accident. We are so, so incapable sometimes of doing the right thing and seeing the right way and uh, figuring out the right. So do we really want a God that's only as smart as us? Or can we trust what we have heard about a healer? Can we trust the stories around us of transformation and forgiveness and new beginnings and new life? Can we trust In Jesus, we trust in Jesus. See, here's what the man had to decide in that moment. He had to decide if he was going to let Jesus be Jesus. See, we try and be Jesus ourselves sometimes, don't we? Why? And, And he would just be someone who would have to do what Jesus told him to do. He would have to decide if he was going to let Jesus be Jesus. And John writes the story, and I'm thinking, why did John put this story into the, the, the record, the front of Jesus' public career, the biography about Jesus? This is, and I think what John did, and I think why John included it, is because it's a story of our essential attitude about Jesus and ourselves. It's a story that gets us to ask ourselves the, question, the same question that this man had to ask himself. It's a story that asks us to let Jesus be Jesus and for us to simply be the people who need Jesus to be Jesus. The people who have tried every other thing on our own, the people who have tried figuring it out on our own, we need someone outside of ourselves. We need a solution that does not come from us. We have exhausted all of our resources. We've exhausted all of our family's resources and our friends' resources. We, we've, we've run 12 miles uphill to reach the end of ourselves, and we're tired, and we're out of breath. But at the end of ourselves, thankfully and so wonderfully, we have found a healer, and now it is time for you, and it's time for me, and in this circumstance, this morning, this moment is actually going to come to a point for some people in this room. It is time for us to decide, are we really ready to let Jesus be Jesus and let our broken selves be our broken selves? Can you trust him? Do 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 you really trust him? Like, are you done doing it your way? Are you done trying your ways? Are you done trying to figure it out for yourself? Are you done trying to work it out for yourself? Can you just trust him? Can you trust him? All over this room, come on, can we bow our heads and and talk with him for ourselves this morning? Come on, all over this room, tell him, Jesus, I see you. Jesus, I hear your words. Help us to trust you. Help us, Lord, like that other father in your story that looked at you in the face and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name. And I think that this is the defining moment in the story. We're come to the point, and John has brought us to the point where we realize that everything else going forward depends on what this royal official, this nobleman, was going to do with the words of a humble carpenter. He had no evidence of his own that what this rumored healer told him would come true would actually come true. He had no proof that his son would be healed. He had offered Jesus nothing in exchange, and in spite of his bank account, he was empty. In spite of looking like he had it all together, his world had come undone. And now Jesus had dropped five cut and dry words into the sand at his feet. Go, and your son will live. So with a dying boy and no other place to turn, what would this man do? What would this father do with what Jesus had told him to do? So beautifully, the man took Jesus at his word. And he departed. He let Jesus be Jesus. He let the healer be the healer. He let the Savior be the Savior. He didn't argue. He didn't try and influence or get Jesus to change his mind. What Jesus had said 
was enough. And without evidence of his own, but depending on the testimony of life after life after life, this man chose to let Jesus be Jesus. And he simply did what the healer had told him to do. And so this morning I ask you, what's dying that you can't fix? Or what's broken that you can't fix? And what's dying that you can't heal? What would make you run 12 miles uphill to ask a favor of a carpenter? We all hide behind our titles and our salaries and college degrees that are framed and printed proudly on the walls, and it's all wonderful achievements. And our 401ks are locked in, but then there are other moments when we're at home and we're behind closed doors and the computer is off and the lights are off, and it's just those moments where we are faced with ourselves, where we are faced with our brokenness, and we realize that titles and money and degrees really mean very little in life. And we remember that there is something in our life that needs a miracle. There is someone, some relationship, something in our life that needs a healer. And all we have to go on are rumors. All the evidence that we have to weigh and to consider is stories from other people. And these aren't even stories of people that are in our normal circles. These are stories of sick people. Hello, City Grace. These are stories of former broken people. Hello, church family, this morning. Anybody want to admit that we were sick and broken without the Lord? But come on, aren't people who used to be sick the best kind of people to ask if Jesus can really heal? And I'm here to tell you this morning that he can He will. He wants to. But we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to get desperate that, God, I need you to change something that I can't seem to change on my own. I need you to break an addiction that I can't seem to break on my own. I need you to do something that's beyond myself. So, Jesus, I come to you. Because I have some broken things that I can't fix and there's something that's dying and I can't seem to bring it back to life. But maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe that's why you're asking questions. Maybe it's why you opened up to that maybe that you felt when someone invited you to church and you've tried other things and you've been other places, but some things are still broken. Some things are still dying. This man of no small means does what every person hopes to do when they meet someone greater than themselves. This father, above everything else, he's a dad with a sick boy. He cares nothing about what other people say. He cares nothing for the cost. And he gets to Jesus and he takes Jesus at his word and he does what Jesus tells him to do. And this is the beautiful part. While he was still on the way. While he was still on the way home. While he was just walking. Come on, somebody say, while he was walking. While he was just walking. While he was just doing what the healer had told him to. It doesn't feel like I'm doing anything spectacular in this moment. It doesn't feel like I'm really contributing anything to the change. But it shouldn't feel like we're the ones contributing to the change. We can't fix it on our own. But in simply doing what the healer has told us to do while we were still on the way, his servants met with him with the news that his boy was living. And then the most amazing thing happened when he inquired as to the time when his son got better. They said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household believed. Now watch this morning. Watch. Because you might come and and think that all you need to do is just get a word from Jesus. But look at this. As he is doing what Jesus told him to do, what Jesus promised began to come true. 
It wasn't just when he heard the words. It's when he turned around and did what Jesus said that he needed to do. While he was still wondering if he had wasted his time, before he saw the miracle in his hand, while he had no evidence, but in simple obedience, he did what Jesus asked him to do. In that moment, the power of a healer sprang up 12 miles away, and his boy was healed. And what doctors could not do, what medicine could not do, what no other force that he had access to could do, Jesus could do, and Jesus had done. But it happened while he was doing what Jesus had said, because it's in the doing that we find the difference. It's not just in a few cute sayings, but it's in the doing of what Jesus has said That's what proves why we really come to Jesus. That's what proves what we really believe about who Jesus is. For all his nobility and position and power, the most valuable title that this man held in that moment was Father. And thanks to Jesus, he was still a father. He was still a father. His core identity, the thing that mattered so much that it had sent him running to Cana in the beginning Isn't it beautiful about Jesus that he knows how to look past all of the stuff that other people see and to reach down and fix what really matters at our core? Isn't it so beautiful that he he knows how to reach past all of the social media and the pretend and all of the fronts and all of the facades and all of the faces that we put out there and he knows how to get to our heart. He knows how to get to what matters the most. He knows how to get to what's broken we can't fix and what's dying, we can't seem to heal on our own. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you that to you we can bring our broken things, that to you we can bring what is dying and we can see your resurrected life injected into situations that we thought were over, we thought were done. And so we ask again this morning, what's broken that you can't fix? What's dying in your life that you've tried resurrecting on your own and it's just not working? It's why you're here, maybe. It's why you cried last week or the week before. It's why you're desperate. It's why you can't hardly seem to sleep. You can't seem to get peace. What's broken that you can't fix? What's dying that you can't seem to heal? What pain? Now look, what pain is God using to get your attention? What pain is God using to get your attention? What pain has God allowed to come to you, not to overwhelm you, but to send you on a journey? 12 miles uphill in the middle of a desert where maybe you leave some of your dignity and maybe you leave some of the facade in the front that you've put in front of yourself. You run to the only thing that you you just hope it works. And you're going off somebody else's story and you're going off somebody else's testimony, but what is it that matters that much? What is it that's broken that you can't fix? What is it that's dying that you can't seem to heal? For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.